Hi, how are you doing? That distant sound of machinery that you can hear is the long-awaited roar of a combine harvester. I just sat down to work at my desk this afternoon when I heard it and I picked up my equipment and rushed out. I've been really hoping that harvest would start sometime this week and it has. I've been following my ears and I'm pretty close now, I reckon it's got to be this field or the next. The huge machines that do three jobs, reaping, threshing and winnowing all in one. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. The air is full of flying chaff. I'm pretty close now. Welcome to episode 19 of The Stubborn Light of Things. red combine in the field <laughs> I found the harvest <laughs> it's very strange that it should be so hard it's often done at night when it's cooler and I've had a couple of false starts where I've gone out from home with my recording equipment and haven't been able to find <laughs> which field's being done the sound travels a long way. Or I've been on a walk and I've seen the machines that they've been parked and they've not been working. Okay, so there he is. He's a big, bright red combine. There's dust and chaff pouring out of the back of it, a huge cloud. It's an awe-inspiring sight, actually. Such a big machine. With the blades at the front whirring, eating up the wheat. This week I'm really excited to introduce you to Nicola Chester. She's a nature writer, a Guardian country diarist, and she was a contributor to the Seasons anthologies that I edited some years ago. Um, and which are still available, they're published in support of the Wildlife Trust. Nicola uh, has just finished work on a memoir of place, protest and the rural working classes, which I'm really excited to read, and she's joining us from the North Wessex Downs. Hello, I'm sitting on the big chalk hill high above our house. We're tenants on a rural Downland estate, and our house is a former estate worker's cottage. If I stand on the long barrow behind me, I can just about see it behind the farm. Before, we lived in a tied cottage just an afternoon's walk away. I've always felt tied to this landscape. It's the most wonderful time of year for chalk wildflowers. In the square metre around me, there could be 40 different species. 
and it smells like a kitchen herb garden. I can see bedstraws, scabious, knapweeds, um, agrimony, calamint, salad bonnet, which when crushed smells deliciously of cucumber, and the lovely little hotbells of quaking grass. And there are marbled white butterflies and linnets and yellow hammers and the shadows of kites passing over like windmill sails. The hills are dry, grazed, they warm quickly and the turf and soil is skin thin, so the plants hug the earth. The anthill tumps, that we call antle bumps, are these wonderful raised pillow castles embroidered with wild thyme, chalk milkwort, marjoram and the delightfully named squinancy wort. Behind me on the long barrow is a double gibbet used just once in 1676 for a pair of adulterous, murderous lovers. Being used to it, the gibbet rarely feels like a grisly thing. It's a viewpoint for a magnificent panorama high above this geographical collision of Ice Age chalk, and it's something of a migratory landmark for birds, though it does have an atmospheric gathering quality. Thomas Hardy was a regular visitor. The hills look smooth and green and rounded, with combs like linen folds in the landscape, the swell of an old ocean, revilious country. It's a landscape full of stories, of rebellion and riot, feudal mists, conservation and chemicals. Sometimes it seems the landscape wants to repeat these stories, to form their shape, and it's hard not to let it take you shedding you off hills like sheep into folds and tracks so worn they can be hard to get out of. This hill raised, and continues to raise, our three children. They know every hand span of it in all weathers, and right now harvest has begun. We have a harvest ritual. Once our field has been taken in, we creep out with other estate cottages in a kind of modern gleaning to stuff sacks full of straw for chickens or rabbits or pumpkin plants, or even to run a wheelbarrow off for the horses. And then we celebrate with a harvest steeplechase, racing each other over the hurdles of heaped straw windrows. We're all tenants of this earth, tied to its nature. My love for this landscape rewards and hurts in equal measure. But I'm all in. It's my muse. a monster. Now he's turning the field margin, he's lifted the blades, reversing. He's going to go back, do another line. I must be 20 yards away. big shoot at the back coming up off one side. Sometimes alongside the combine there's a grain truck and you see the grain coming out continuously into the truck. But more often you see a tractor also in the field pulling a kind of hopper 
and when the combine's full of grain, the tractor will pull up alongside. The combine will discharge into the hopper, and when the hopper's full, the tractor will take it away and get a, get a fresh one. This is a field quite close to the Albarn. I, I saw this field when the wheat was, it just looked like very fine grass. I've watched it grow, I've watched it turn golden, I've watched the heads tip over, and now it's being safely gathered in. It's extraordinary, you know, it's a job that would have taken a whole village before. Men, women and children, and it would have taken weeks. I mean, you know, you go right back to the days when harvesting was done with scythes, and it was backbreaking. And then, of course, with oxen, and then horses, drawing primitive machines. The reaper binders themselves were cutting-edge technology in the 1930s. And now we have these huge behemoths. This is wheat, and as you know, I'm sure, wheat is used to make flour and pasta and bread and cakes and things, all things like that. Quite a lot of it goes for animal feed as well, and a little bit for uh, biodiesel, not much. Our barley fields around the village are a little bit behind, I think. Still got a little bit of green in them. And barley goes for malting, the best barley goes for malting, for beer. And the rest also animal feed. There's a little bit for um, culinary yeast like pearl barley, but not much. Where the combine's gone through the wheat, it's left a razor edge between the, the golden corn stubble and the standing corn. It's beautiful. You know, even if you're not connected with agriculture, to watch this happen in your local fields, it's exciting. Extraordinary. The lanes around the village at the moment are full of tractors and grain trucks. When the big combines come along, they've often got um, escort vehicles to clear the way. I'm terrible at reversing, but I like it. It's exciting this time of year. In 2018, you might remember, we had uh, a really long, hot summer, and it was my first summer in Suffolk. In August, the heat wave had just broken, and I wrote about it in my Times Nature Notebook. The Times Nature Notebook, August 2018. Heat for weeks on weeks. No rain at all since early May. In East Anglia, the earth was baked, the grass long gone. Only the deeper-rooted weeds still showed green here and there. Plantain, dandelion, bindweed coiling up from somewhere far underground. In the drought, Orthoptera thrived. The meadow in front of my cottage was abuzz with grasshoppers by day, while dark bush crickets sang in the village gardens through each stifling, clammy night. 
Flies swarmed indoors, far more than usual. Birds, sheltering from the blazing sun, fell daily into my flue and had to be released, panicking from the empty wood burner. Out in the cracked and fissured fields, the wheat was harvested, and then the barley. The golden acres, dry as tinder, had looked wonderful below the hard blue bowl of the sky, but yields were poor. The ford was dry, the ditches empty. The water level in the river sank low and then lower. Crop fires saw the cancellation of some local trains. And then, at last, the weather broke. Warm rain hammered the corn stubble and drenched the parched meadows, releasing heady, fragrant petrichor, washing our sandy soil straight off the fields to block the drains and flooding the lower-lying roads. Weed seeds germinated, and within two days, tiny cotyledons carpeted my tired flower beds. A few days more, and a fresh green aftermath appeared where acres of blonde barley had once waved. At night... I lay in bed and listened to the rain pattering on the roof and gurgling in the gutters, picturing the damp brown fields, the water refilling the ditches, and all the grateful frogs and toads, those that have made it through the heat wave, once again able to move about. It can't be easy being an amphibian in a dry spell, or even a hedgehog come to that. Until a couple of days ago I hadn't seen a living slug, snail or worm since spring. Small wonder... Weeks of stifling heat have made life hard for anything that needs to be moist. As global temperatures warm, summers like this will fast become more frequent. Not all of our precious wildlife will prove able to adapt. Well, I've come away from um, the combines to one of the village's barley fields. Uh, which haven't yet been harvested and are, I don't know, a week off, maybe a bit more. And that was a green woodpecker you just heard in the distance. I've just realised I've got chaff in my hair. <laughs> that combine was um, blowing up a real cloud of it and it's, it's all over me. Harvest has changed so much in the last few hundred years. And as I was saying before, it used to be a real event for the entire village. And because it was so important, you know, it affected your survival through winter and so precarious and unpredictable, it gathered a lot of folklore around it. And if you go online and, and look into harvest folklore, it, you'll just fall down an absolutely fascinating rabbit hole, which is what I did when I was researching my last novel, All Among the Barley. And there were a lot of traditions around things like cutting the first sheaf and particularly the last sheaf, where it was thought the corn spirit resided. And people did all sorts of things. I mean, you know, part of that is where corn dollies come from. Um, but there was a, a tradition when people still cut um, with size, the, the last sheaf would be tied as if it had a waist, so it was a vaguely female shape. And the reapers would stand around it in a circle with their backs to it, and uh, all throw a sickle over their shoulders, which sounds terrifying to me, so that whoever reaped it couldn't be blamed for capturing the corn spirit. Often it was kept through winter and ploughed into the fields on Plough Monday, which was the first day of, of working the fields after winter. 
One of the traditions I found really haunting came from Devon in the southwest, which was that of crying the neck. And again, it was to do with the last sheaf. The last sheaf would be bound and the harvesters would stand around it in a circle and they'd take their hats off and bow right down. And then as they stood up together, they would cry, the neck, the neck, the neck, and throw their hats in the air. It was a way of honouring the corn spirit, although probably by the end of this tradition, people weren't believing in it, perhaps, um, literally. You know, it, it ended up a bit like when we throw a coin in a fountain and make a wish. We don't really believe that a spirit lives there. You know, it's a tradition, it's a thing that we feel called to do. But it was also a way of declaring to neighbouring farms that you'd finished because farmers were competitive with each other, as I'm sure they are now. I came across this amazing description from uh, 1826 of the neck being cried in Devon, and it's by a rural writer called William Hone. And he wrote, On a fine still autumn evening, the crying of the neck has a wonderful effect at a distance. I have once heard upwards of 20 men cry it, and sometimes joined by an equal number of female voices. About three years back on some high grounds where our people were harvesting, I heard six or seven necks cried in one night, although I knew that some of them were four miles off. They are heard through the quiet evening air at a considerable distance sometimes. I think there's something really important about um, ritual and about marking occasions. And I know a lot of people have been worrying about teenagers and what happens when they're not able to mark the transition, you know, the end of school or or the beginning of school or, you know, any of those exam-related moments. For me, what's been important in the last few years is developing seasonal rituals as well. So there's things that I do, like cutting the very first snowdrop that I, that I see that I'm allowed to cut, you know, it's not in someone's garden, and bringing it indoors and uh, weaving my own wreath for my door at Christmas, even though they've come out really badly, noticing the first swifts and trying to notice the last swifts, building up a picture of the year as it changes, just as we build up the picture of our, our lives as they change, and just as you know, we mark those moments of ending and reward together communally. I think you know, a lot of these harvest traditions persisted for a long time in rural communities, and, and well into the 20th century, the last load from the fields was driven through the village decked with garlands and boughs and taken round the pubs and everyone would stop and buy the harvesters a drink there might be rural traditions where you are that that mark this amazing occasion communally I hope so when I looked at Gilbert White's diary entries for this time of year it seems that harvest must have been held a little later in his day, um, because today he's, he's not seeing any of it yet and all of his mentions come from a little later into August. August the 10th, 1768. Young pheasants are flyers. White butterflies gather in flocks on the mud of puddles. August the 10th, 1773, a most sultry night. 
August the 10th, 1774. No Swifts. They are seen no more with us. August the 10th, 1779. Wheat lies in a bad way. Peaches and plums rot. Flying ants swarm in millions. Inches of rain, three. August the 10th, 1780. Sowed a crop of spinach for the winter and spring and trod the seed well in. August the 10th, 1787. When the red breasts have finished the currants, they begin with the berries of the honeysuckles, of which they are very fond. August the 10th, 1790. A labourer has mown out in the precincts of Hartley Wood during the course of this summer as many pheasants' nests as contained 60 eggs. My brother Thomas White came. I'm just pausing by um, a bend in the road to bring you the song of the Yellowhammer. It's a little bit more distant than I would have liked. I'll see if I can get a bit closer. But he sings a little bit of bread and no cheese. And he's sitting on a telephone wire. A bright yellow bird. Well, the males are anyway. People often think they've seen a canary. And they're quite, they're a bunting. They're quite biggish. A little bit bigger than, bigger than a chaffinch. A little bit bigger than a sparrow, I'd say. And they're a bird that continues to breed through August, which means they continue to sing. So during the school holidays, if you go for long walks in agricultural country and sometimes on uplands as well, among gorse and heather, you might hear that repetitive song, A Little Bit of Bread and No Cheese. And it just speaks to me of high summer heat, shimmering distances, stillness. I've turned for home now and I'm just pausing because I'm being absolutely surrounded by dragonflies and I'm hoping one of them will come close enough for the microphone to pick it up. They're darting around me at sort of head height. Um, I can't tell what kind they are, they're quite large. I'm not close to any water that I know of but they're hunting the margin of this barley field um, absolutely extraordinary. There's, there must be a dozen or more. This week's poem is In the Fields by Charlotte Mew, who was born in 1869. She was the eldest of seven. Three of her siblings died and two were committed to psychiatric institutions. Charlotte was a really interesting character and I, I think um, her poetry's um, unfairly unregarded these days. She was small and she had short hair. She wore men's suits. And Virginia Woolf called her the greatest living poetess. In the fields, which carries the rich, heady feeling of August, but also looks forward to spring, is read by Alison Brackenbury. 
He really has become the guiding spirit of this podcast. Lord, when I look at lovely things which pass, under old trees the shadow of young leaves, dancing to please the wind along the grass, or the gold stillness of the August sun on the August sheaves, can I believe there is a heavenlier world than this? And if there is, will the heart of any everlasting thing bring me these dreams that take my breath away? They come at evening, with the home-flying rooks and the scent of hay over the fields. They come in spring.